Welcome to the School of Faith podcast. I'm Chris Nye. This is part two of our biblical narrative class on the fall. Again, uh, if you've missed this summer and the summer studies, this was a part of our theology track. And so uh, we get deep here. We go into the depths of scripture and really look at the second part of God's story, which is the fall of humanity, really centered around Genesis three. If you have not listened to part one, I would suggest going back and listening to part one. It's titled Creation, the Biblical Narrative Creation, and get ready for this class. Um, So without further ado, here is the Biblical Narrative part two on the fall. else I'm hearing so okay yeah um yes a question please um yeah absolutely the the Lord regretted um that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart so like both those words yeah and I feel like I understand grieved a little bit more okay tell me tell me why I feel like he can have feelings he like grieved he's like sad kind of for the human race yeah but then to me, regret is like a reflection on his actions more, and I don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. So this sentence, if we look in verse 5, right, it says, The Lord saw that, Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the, th- of, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and that's what made the Lord feel, th- feel this way. Now, it's always super helpful to do what I'm doing here, which is highlighting the word regretted and to kind of look at what else it might be translated in and through fancy software, you can kind of see this word is actually translated in sometimes as repent, which even changes it a little bit because you're like, I thought that's what we do. So it even can complicate like, don't we repent because we were wrong in one way and we moved to another way regret to me and the reason I think I join with that question is like it it conjures up in my mind uh, like a feeling that's like I did the wrong thing right I regretted doing that but this original word and repentance in general like through, through repentance or regret when you see that word in scripture it's less about feeling bad about what you've done and more about changing your mind changing your mind so Actually, the Lord does this many times through Scripture. It's interesting. His mind changes. So what we'll see through the fall, and we'll look at it a little bit more in chapter 3 when we look at like what happens in the fall, um, that this idea of regret or repent is not the Lord changing his character, but being more committed to his character and changing his mind. Okay. So I think I've talked about this on Sunday at some point at Awakening where it's like, you changing your mind can actually be not a rejection of your character or a change of your character, but like a further commitment to your character. So like, um, yeah, like I think the example I've used before is if 
you are always late and always late and always late and, and, and every time I don't say anything, I don't say anything, but like it's a value to me that you're on time. At some point, I'm not gonna show up. I'm gonna change my mind to like make plans with you in a different way because of your actions on what you've done. It's not a change of my character, but a further commitment to my character to be like, hey look, if I say 6.15 and you keep rolling through at 6.45, I'm going to start saying six so that you show up at 6.30, you know, or whatever. I'm going to change my mind about something I'm doing because of who I am, and that's a further commitment to who I am. And so when the Lord does this, he, he regrets and he repents, not because he feels bad, but because he's like, as a further commitment to my holiness, right, this is what I'm going to do. Still, a con- still kind of confusing, perplexing, but yeah, moves the story forward. Other questions, thoughts? Things, Lacey. Um, I have a question about, especially when I was reading through Genesis. Yeah. When you were talking about, like, is it literary or literal? Mm-hmm. Kind of like, when does it become literal? Yeah. Like, as we're reading it, and like we know the story of Adam is important to like the genealogy. Yeah. But also, there's like a talking snake in the Genesis story, which like feels literary and not literal to me. So. Yeah. Last week we talked about we want to make sure we're reading the Bible literarily more than literally. And what we meant by that is like to trace the story and to not be so caught up. We were talking about creation, right? And creation, people can get really caught up in the nuts and bolts. But the purpose of the creation narrative was not uh, was the earth created in six days or over thousands of years. They're not interested in that question. The person who wrote it at the time they wrote it didn't know the theories we know now. Um, so when do we decide to read the Bible that way and when do we not? My argument would be that actually we should rarely be reading it in such a way where we're looking at it literally in that way. Okay, literally in that way. Okay, do I believe Adam was a literal person? Yes. Do I believe Eve was a literal person? Yes. Do I believe that there was a real interaction with a, with a creature? I do believe there's a real interaction with a creature. And to read it literarily does not mean to make it a metaphor. So that's something that we, we're going to talk about a little bit when we get into Genesis 3. What I mean is, it does, uh, or to not allegorize it, do you know what I mean? Like make it an allegory. It's not an allegory. The person who's presenting this is presenting it with a kind of history. And Lacey mentioned, and you guys read in your reading plan, uh, the genealogy. This is the book of the generations of Adam. No ancient historical document had this kind of detail to genealogies and made it up. We don't have anything ancient written in any time near this that would make up a genealogy. So this makes me think real people, real situation, real uh, generations happening. Um, and I think you can interplay, this is a real literal person, and also interplay with we're being told a story. We're not told everything about Adam. I mentioned last week, we're not even told everything about the earth. In fact, as I refer to my beautiful drawing down here, we are given, this is Eden, okay? And the way that the scriptures work is the scriptures talk about Eden, then they talk about the nations we're going to get to in a little bit. All of the earth, which we got to in Genesis 6, becomes corrupt. And then the cosmos or the universe or the, 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 whole, uh, the whole world or something like that when the Bible talks about. These are the kind of, you know, uh, concentric squares of how the world is viewed. The story that the writer is really interested in is how does... What happened here, like, spread to out here? How does what happened here kind of spread to what's out here? That's what the story's pushing forth and pushing forward. And that's what we should be primarily concerned about. 
So that's why I was saying with, cre with creation, we don't have to get caught up into the nuts and bolts of creation. And likewise with the snake or with the serpent, we don't have to get necessarily caught up in the nuts and bolts of the serpent. I would also say this. Um, if you have a problem, and I'm, I'm not talking about Lacey, but if we have a problem in general with a talking snake, you're going to have a problem with a man who got up from the grave. So the, I love that the Bible meets the miracu miraculous, the strange, the bizarre right away because you're going to get that throughout the rest of Scripture. And so there's a level of like just worldview that you have to reckon with, which is do I believe that we are only living in a materialist world, like a materialistic world, a, a world of material, where the only thing I can experience and know is that which I can smell, taste, touch, observe. You know, it's the scientific method, observable, repeatable, right? Are those the things that I interact with or not? Or do I believe in the larger world that God has created to do strange things? Because this is just one example of like 900 of just really weird things that happen in scripture. So um, that would be kind of a couple of thoughts on that. But I think literary and liter literal are things that can interplay. Um, we just need to know the main purpose is not to tell us about the facts about Adam, the facts about a snake, the facts about fill in the blank. Um, we're not seeing video evidence of anything. We're being told a story that is telling us a deeper theological truth. Does that make sense? So yeah, you, you, I think you always have to wrestle with that. I don't think it's like, well, when you see this, this, and this, then you take it this way or that way. I think the literal and the literary are kind of intertwined. And you have to be a careful reader. There's a time in the book of Judges where somebody says the stars of Israel fought on, or the stars of the sky fought on behalf of Israel. That didn't literally happen. But they said it in a song. And so what do they mean? They mean that the heavens were fighting on their behalf. And so you have to be a careful reader to just go, okay, I know I'm reading more of a poetic expression here. So, yeah, you just have to be a more of a careful reader like that, which is part of why we do this, right? It's good. Other things that jumped out. In the reading? Yes, please. About who they met before. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In those days, the Nephilim, chapter 6. Remember I was saying like you randomly just like see random people groups pop up? And again, because Genesis 1 and 2, well Genesis 1 is like out here, and then remember we zoom in on Genesis 2, and we just get the Eden creation story. And what I was saying is that actually simultaneously, who's to say that while God is creating Eden, he's also, you know, who's to say he's not also creating the nations and all the earth, right? He's like also, we're just getting a zoomed in image. So by six, though, we have zoomed out. And how do I know we've zoomed out? Is like man began to multiply the face of the earth. And the Lord said, my, my spirit, he limits man's life. We're jumping ahead a little bit. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and we're like, who are these people? And it says, actually, it could be translated giants. The only thing we really know about these people is they were large, foreign, and actually some, and this it goes a little bit into my spiritual warfare class. There is an argument here that these are more of angelic creatures, like more of like demons. Well, that's what I was reading. Yeah. Three different theories on what it could be. Royalty, could be angelic, fallen angels. Yes. Yeah, man. Yeah. So like 
those are that's where I'm saying like these this is an issue of interpretation that I, I'm actually quite open to. I tend to believe because of this following sentiment, sentence, they were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children of them, they were mighty men who were old, the men of renown. I do think these are kind of foreign people who were under the influence, this sons of God language. I can't get into right now, but it's a lot more, it's not holy. It's, it's, it's a really weird translation of like an old word that's just a spiritual kind of thing, um, is that these are foreign people that were worshiping foreign gods that ended up, uh, uh, you know, uh, marrying these wives and basically spreading their worship and idolatry of foreign uh, gods. Yeah. That's the short answer. <laughs> There's a lot of debate about this. Yeah. Other questions and thoughts? Good stuff so far. Um, yes, please. Based off of that. Yeah. So what purpose does this have in the Kingdom? Essentially, is it like the lineage of Goliath then, maybe? So that's, that's actually, there's a lot of speculation about that. Yeah, like where the Philistines come from and the Canaan, all these foreign nations that you end up meeting later, that the Nephilim were some of the, the start of that. Um, basically, enemies of God and enemies of Israel, enemies of uh, Yahweh all that stuff definitely the purpose here is to expose us to the um implications of the genealogy which is which is this sin is not something that's just in eden but eden is experiencing that which the nations and the ends of the earth is also experiencing and like the writer is trying to take five the genealogy of adam he's like that's the family in eden and then six, and say that's what's happening at the ends of the earth. And to combine them means like this is a cosmic problem. Sin is a cosmic problem, it's not a local problem. So I think the purpose of putting them in there is like to expand our vision of sin. Make sense? Anything else we want to toss around, kick around before we dive into more of the fall. We're, we're hitting some of the stuff I planned for, so this is great. Anything else? Other thoughts? Yeah. So, in the creation story, um, it's like, last week you mentioned, like, outside of the Garden Eden, there's probably, like, entire, like, nations or, like, people, groups, and, like, animals running around, right? Yep. I would, like, I imagine, like, also, like, in that creation, like, God created, like, entire ecosystems where, like, life and death already, like, coexisted, you know, where mm -hmm. death already existed on the earth before, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this, like, sin was introduced. Gotcha. Yeah, the, the, that will be certainly answered today. The spoiler alert is that sin and death, from what the author is telling us, came through Eden first, and that's why we go to that story. It didn't go to the other nations first, that it went to Eden first, but once it went to Eden, once it started at Eden, um, it kind of spread to the nations. I will get to that today, so I'm almost just going to put a pause on that, but to give you the spoiler alert to say, it started in Eden, it's, a, it's definitely a cosmic problem, but we really think the first rebellion from towards God happened within Eden with Adam. So yeah, I'll talk about that. Good question. Yeah? Spiritual warfare. Is that indicating in the and then you also mentioned last week about when he says let let us. Let us. So it almost sounds like there's a, another story going on 
Yeah. At the same time, it may be the author maybe moving people all the years that Satan was around, or there's another story yes. that's not included. Yes. That's told elsewhere. Definitely. No, I think that's a good read on it, and even a good way to put it. Another story's happening alongside the story we're reading. We don't get windows into that other story until we keep reading the story we're in. The story we're in is a very physical creation story about the earth, about people, about animals, blood, murder, sin, the things that have uh, sexual immorality, the things that happen on the earth. And as you continue to read this story, and you go to the prophets, and you go to the Psalms, and even you continue to read the, in the Pentateuch into like numbers and stuff like that, and Deuteronomy has some language about this, you start to realize, oh, there is, okay, outside of the physical world, and this is what the spiritual warfare class really hit on, right? There is this other story of God and his heavenly hosts. At the same time as he's created this physical world, he's created a spiritual world that includes angels, demons, and himself as the king of kings, the lord of lords, the god of gods, which is where you get... Um, I hope I don't butcher this. I think it's um, Psalm 82. Okay, look, yeah, and look at this. This is a psalm in the Old Testament. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Th this is a whole psalm about God being uh, the God of gods, if you hear that before. The Lord of lords, right? And that's not to say that we're living in a polytheistic world. It's just that monotheism in, in Scripture is all about um, God as the capital G God and his subjects being demons and angels that are also kind of seen as lowercase g gods. So when you hear God of gods or God, you are the only God, it's that in comparison to the smaller gods, when, when God shows up, they're really not gods. They're so weak, right? It's the same, my example is always like, when I'm shooting hoops by myself, I am a basketball player. When LeBron James comes on the court while I'm shooting hoops, I am not a basketball player. It's like, oh, do you play basketball? Nope, I don't. I'm just gonna set this down and write like, the, the gods, when God is not present, they hold some kind of sway and power, the demons do. But this is Jesus, right? When Jesus shows up on the scene, like the demons are scared of him. They're frightened of him. They're like, whoa, we've been kind of playing around, but you're here and we're scared of you now. Um, so they're, they're like nothing compa in comparison to, to them. And so um, likewise, that's kind of the other story the Old Testament is painting alongside the story of scripture. Yeah. Isn't that kind of like, I remember last week also in the book, they were talking about how like it's kind of they call God like Elohim, right? Right. But isn't that like a term that's used for kind of all of that it includes all like the divine council and the yes. creatures? That's why they kind of add like the L in front of Elohim. Yep. And so, yeah, uh, Chris is whipping out some Hebrew. But um, Elohim is the name used for this God, the God of gods, the God of Israel, Yahweh. They'll call him Elohim um, or El Elohim, uh, the God of gods basically these are also called elohim so it's really weird because in this passage if you read it uh well not this passage is not the best example but when it says the god of gods it'll say yahweh he is the elohim of elohims it's the same it's the same word and so um in other words right he he is in a category um where we can't see him so he's elohim 
but he's such the Elohim of Elohims, he also has nothing to do with these guys in some ways, right? He dominates them. If he wants to destroy them, he can destroy them, yeah. Same way as, yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump in, guys. Let's, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, that's really where we're going to camp out, um, is we're going to spend a lot of time here. And um, it'll be on the screen as we kind of chart through it. And basically what I did with your notes is um, got a little feedback that there was not enough white space in the notes. So <laughs> feedback heard, feedback received. Repentance. Okay, this is, yeah. Um, yeah, Chris saw all of the notes he had made and he regretted uh, the notes that he made. And, um, and this is my attempt to change. So anyways, what I decided to do is organize us around words that will jump us through the story and help us understand um, how the story moves forward. So I guess I lied. Let, we got to go before Genesis three and we've got to scroll up to Genesis uh, chapter two um, where God kind of gives his his uh, stipulations around what it is that he has made and what it is that the man should do so the Lord God remember work happens before sin so work is good I know you guys hate having jobs but work is good sin is what screwed up work work is divinely ordained um, and he tells him, you, you can do anything with any tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the command. That's your first word right there is in Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 17. And this command is a generous command that is given for life, right? Remember I talked about last week, like, he can do anything in the garden. The garden is his, but God set up a world of choice. Remember that? God set up a world of choice. And again, I'll just remind you, uh, we said this last week, you don't get to choose the world God created. Listen, as a finite human being, I'm like, I would have made a perfect world. But God didn't want to make a perfect world. He wanted to make a good world. And so in this good world, he wanted to make a world, too, of love. And we talked about last week, love is, is includes choice. And the choice he decided to give his this creature was a choice about agriculture and eating the tree. But he tells him that he can eat what? What can he eat? Y'all are so funny and quiet. You're all afraid. What? Yeah, he can eat anything. Come on. He can eat anything. Right? All right. He can eat any tree. And then... But the knowledge of, the, he's got this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Let me, let me ask you this question. As you read, just look at Genesis 15, 16, 17. I'll just highlight it for you so it's easy to spot. Like, is there anything bad about the tree itself? Is God saying the tree is bad? It'll make him die. It'll make him die. So there's some level of warning that's just like, just don't even mess with this tree. Because the moment you eat of it, in that day, you will surely die. Okay. Just want you to remember that very closely. Danielle. The concept of death? Hmm. Yeah. What about it? <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, what kind of threat was that to them? Yeah. This is an interesting question. What kind of threat was the knowledge of death 
what's so interesting because because to your point a lot of us think before this humans live forever there is that passage where god limits the time we looked at in genesis 6 limits the time of human beings uh lifespan but it's also interesting to think about this in in con, uh in concert with this idea up here where the lord god formed out of the ground breath in his life and he made him a living creature was adam alive before this yes he was alive before he made him a living creature in fact god was making humans again before this and telling them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it right that's the command across all creation what we talked about was that god breathing his life into him and making him a living creature was the first time the human being made contact and relationship with god and was filled with god's spirit and so my point being this is a, maybe a long way but an important way to say death scripturally is not just the lack of brain function you know death is not just your heart stopping death is uh, the demise of a human being apart from god that is death Death is, is like either living apart from God, right? Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3, somewhere around there. In Ephesians 2, like in your trespasses, you were dead. And so this idea that these, these people will die is because you'll notice. Well, let's do a quick spoiler alert. Y'all read the story. They eat the tree. Do they die? I mean, they live east of Eden. Seems like a pretty good deal. But in some ways, though, did they die? Yes. Yeah. So the threat of death is not the, 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 the threat of uh, no physical existence, right? It's a warning that's like death is just on, on its way. It includes the end of physical existence, but it means way more than that. It means banishment from God's presence. Yeah. Great question. So... The command sets up the scene, and this is where we get, uh, we have a wedding, we have things going great, man and wife are together. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, mother hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and without shame. No shame. So again, they, they are not perfect but they're unashamed, which I would argue you would rather be unashamed than morally perfect. You'd rather be unashamed than morally perfect. And again, the word, the key word I gave you last week was this was a, sen a state of innocence. That's what we talk about a lot with creation. It's a state of innocence in the way that a young child in its best place is when it innocently lives and obeys its parents, right? Innocently and... Uh, it's really beautiful when you interact with a child who hasn't yet really been totally shamed, <laughs> you know? Shame enters us at a very young age, but like there's moments of, basically as you grow up, you just become more and more ashamed. And the picture of Adam and Eve that I want you to get in this idea of when they're receiving this command is the picture of children. Um, because one of, the th one of the tensions we see is the difference between like good and evil and wisdom and knowing good and evil and the bible always talks about the the unwise as children 
like they just don't know they just when Solomon asks for wisdom um, in later on in the story of Israel he tells God he's like I'm just like a child like I don't know good and bad and I need help knowing good and bad because I'm like a kid and really Adam and Eve are kind of painted in that light they're not ashamed they don't know good and evil the only good and evil they know is from God um, and that makes isn't it kind of interesting when Jesus shows up he's like I want you to become like a child is that there's a sweet innocence that he wants to bring us back to that's a simplicity of thinking um, it's not simplistic it's not childish but it is childlike to become like a child and follow in the ways of God that's the scene we've set with this command then the serpent shows up the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made now so far as you're reading the story serpent means nothing to you right but um, and that's kind of cool I think it's mysterious I think it's difficult to understand I think it's like is this Satan is this not that kind of thing it's actually towards the end of your Bible in Revelation 12 verse 9 that we get an image of Satan being destroyed so by the way here's our story we talked about last week creation fall rebellion redemption um, I said that somewhere along the lines like we're somewhere right here in the story at the end of the story new creation when we've, when we've come full circle into new creation and we're in Revelation one of the images of the new creation is this idea of a great dragon that's being thrown down and look at that ancient serpent like <laughs> he knows who is called the devil who's called Satan in other words when we are in Genesis, we're starting like seven metaphors for the devil. We're just starting seven metaphors. And it really is an issue of just keep reading, keep reading, keep reading, keep going through the story, keep going through the story, keep reading. Down here in the book of Job, when we get into the story of Israel, he's going to be called the accuser. Um, out here in the story of redemption, Jesus is going to call him all sorts of names. He's going to call him all sorts of names. Um, He's going to call him a fox. He's going to call him a serpent. He's going to call him uh, the, the accuser. He's going to call him uh, the father of lies. He's going to call him a, a thief. All these names, Jesus, and metaphors, Jesus will color Satan to be. When we get to here, all of those metaphors combine together in the great destruction of Satan, which is this idea of this image of a dragon, an ancient serpent who's being thrown to the ground. So quick little biblical theology of Satan for you, all in couple minutes there back to Genesis 3 this is what we see now we have the all of us today have the beautiful perspective of being able to look at the whole canon um, but even a, even an ancient Hebrew would have seen the serpent as the tempter the accuser they would have recognized him from like um, Job chapter 2 because Job would have been in their canon if you were an ancient Hebrew person you would have you would have recognized this Satan talking to the Lord. This word is literally just, um, I think it's accuser or adversary, Satan. It's not even a um, proper name. Like we capitalize the S, but it's just, it just says the accuser, or the adversary answered the Lord and said this. It's just the serpent and the devil is this person who is constantly antagonizing the ways of God and constantly taking us at the ways of God and against the ways of God. And this serpent, again, to, to the point made earlier, this other story is going on in the spiritual realm, and it seems that part of the creation, or part of the spiritual realm has, has rebelled before the creation. Spiritual realm has rebelled before the creation. Because of this, look at this. He said to the woman, 
craftier than any beast of the field. And he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall eat of any tree in the garden? Can you answer that question? Did God actually say this highlighted phrase? Yeah, no, he didn't, did he? Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No. He said you just can't eat of one tree. He actually said the opposite of this. He said, eat any tree except the one tree, right? So what do we already know about the serpent? He's a liar. He's a liar. So the woman said, hey, look, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So good theology or bad theology on Eve? Solid theology. She's like, no, God said I could eat anything. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Wait a second. Did he say you couldn't touch it? This is getting into some details, but they're kind of important. No. He didn't say you didn't you didn't he just said don't eat it. So what has Eve already already done? She's she's right and she's not right, right? She's right and she's not right. See, at some level, she has some understanding of God, but at another level, she's adding on to God's commands. Ah, hmm. The beginning of fundamentalism, <laughs> right? God says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and then we come up with swearing. You can't say all of these words, you know? Uh, God says, uh, you know, yeah, God gives a command, and we kind of add on to that command to just keep away from that command, uh, to make sure we're really not in that area of that command, right? Ah, yeah, it's interesting. So the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, okay? For God knows that when you eat, eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing tov and ra, good and evil. Knowing what God knows. God looked at the world. He knows Tov and Ra. He looked at the world he created. He's like, that's Tov. Remember I said he said Tov Tov. It's like really, really good. He looked at everything and it was really, really good. He knows Tov and Ra. And if you eat of it, what you'll be doing is taking yourself out of the covering of God's wisdom into your own wisdom. You'll be able to do your own thing. You're sitting under God's definition of Tov and Ra. And the minute you step out of that by eating something he said was bad, you'll get out from under his definitions of Tov and Ra, and you'll have your own definitions of Tov and Ra. You'll be able to decide what's good and what's evil, and that'll make you like God. See, you will no longer be mastered. Aren't you tired of being mastered? Aren't you tired of having authority over you, people telling you what to do? See, at this point, you get to tell you what to do. Autonomy is the appeal, right? It's appeal. You will not surely die for... God knows when you eat it that your eyes will be opened. So the serpent and the temptation uh, happen through this little phrase we've gone through. And we know the serpent is a liar because uh, he starts with a lie. God told you they're all you can't eat any tree, right? And then he also just blatantly lies here. He just says the opposite of God. God says, if you eat that tree, you're going to die. And he goes, you won't die. Just total opposite phrasing, right? And then makes an appeal to like something about 
her that she probably would like. Kind of this desire. So, the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, this is important, the wisdom appeal is important, she took the fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So this is the moment uh, we've all been waiting for, right? The moment of sin. Um, I want to show you something. Genesis 3, 6, okay? Because this is important to the story. When we talk about, like, the story of Scripture, and we really talk, like, it's not about fruit, right? It's not about trees. It's not about serpents. It's about the human condition. There's something in the human condition. And the Old Testament makes this point in Genesis 3, 6 and a couple other places. I want you to write down the word saw and the word, uh, word took. Saw and took. The woman saw that it was good for food, delights the eyes, and she took of the fruit. Right? She saw and she took of its fruit. Because Old Testament scholars have seen that this repeats over and over again. That when human beings are tempted, they're tempted by the seeing and the taking. Right? They're tempted, and the, sorry, the way they fall into temptation is by gazing and seeing and then taking or apprehending. And let me just show you a couple cool examples since we're in the school of faith. I'd never be able to do this on a Sunday, so let's just do it now. You guys went, took me to Genesis 6 already, right? Did you notice this? When this uh, man began to multiply the face of the earth, the land daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters were attractive and they took their wives. Notice in Genesis 2, God gives the woman to the man. God brings the woman to the man. Here, it's the reverse. The men see the women and take them, apprehend them. They see that they're attractive, and they take them as their wives as they chose, saw and took. They saw the daughters of men, and they, they took the daughters of men, right? Later in Genesis, right? We're still in Genesis, Genesis 30, verse 9. When Leah, this is the story of Leah and Jacob, uh, saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. I won't trust the Lord to provide a child for me. I see that I've not been bearing children, and I will take my servant and subject her to have sex with my husband so that we'll be certainly uh, certain that we have a child. Right, this, I, this idea of sin is perpetuating through the Old Testament as seeing and taking, seeing and taking, right? Uh, just a couple more. Genesis, or just one more, and then I'll show you the redemption passage. This is the story of Judah and Tamar, which is a super sketchy story. If you want to, this is, this is racy. You think your Bible's safe. Do not show this story to children. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, which, ooh, that's bad really bad. <laughs> you see the daughter of a, of a, of a person outside of Israel. Uh, God has, has told the Israelites, marry Israelites. Um, Jude, then there saw uh, the daughter of a certain Canaanite. Look at, he saw her and what? He took her and went into her. This is close to abuse and rape language. This is the idea of seeing and taking. I see that, I desire it, and it's mine. It's not about the fruit, right? It's not about, um, it's about the desires of humankind 
that desires not for God to dictate this is what's good and this is what's evil, but for us to take the autonomy upon ourselves to see what is good and to define for ourselves this is good for me and then to take it. The other thing is that human beings, the other piece of sin, is that human beings will not want um, uh, to wait on God for him to give them the gifts that he told them he would give them. But instead, will take the things that they desire and reject the gifts of God or be impatient. This has nothing to do with modern society, does it? Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that is sin, is seeing something you believe to be beneficial, taking it, and then realizing uh, that it could never be apprehended in the first place. All of these stories that I'm showing you right now, by the way, just in Genesis, <laughs> I'm not having any taken you into the next book of the Bible. And the point being, sin is like, um, it's, it's, it's described in the book of Ecclesiastes like vapor. It's like smoke. You can try to grab it and take it, but it just dissolves. Right? And that's, that's ultimately what happens is you think, and so to, to the point of Satan, absolutely. He saw what God was doing and decided to rebel against him and try to take it and apprehend it, and nothing could happen. All of these stories end and, and in, in, in terrible places. But God bless the biblical writers. They are so genius. They are so poetic. Exodus chapter 2 verse 5 so we go through all of Genesis and we see seeing and taking and seeing and taking but then in the in the in the book of Exodus we see that the people of God are in trouble and in chapter 2 there's a man from the house of Levi uh, oh there's also another one in Genesis 48 17 if you want to do homework about Joseph seeing and taking something yeah sorry okay Genesis 2 we are you familiar with the birth of Moses uh, Moses is born and uh, they are frightened and they're trying to hide the child. She can't hide the child any longer and so she, Moses' mother took uh, this basket and she put the child, placed him among the reeds in the riverbank. Sister stood at a distance to know what would be done for him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to the, uh, down to bathe in the river while a young woman walked beside the river. Look it, she saw the basket and she took it. It's so cool that God uses the desires of other people, of seeing and taking, but then uses that to move Moses into a different position and place into the house of Pharaoh that then, then leads to the redemption of his people. Seeing and taking is like this thing that in Genesis first is painted as like, man, every time someone sees something and takes it, it's bad. And now somebody sees this little child and takes it and then um, leads to the freedom of of the people of Israel. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's just, I don't know, rad. Okay, cool. Some of you thought that was boring. All right. Um, seeing and taking. So back to the story in Genesis. Let's talk about after she sees that it's a delight to the eyes and to make one wise, she decides to get out from under God's wisdom and go into her own wisdom and she takes the fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her also. So if sin is about seeing and taking, sin is also about uh, 
two phrases to write down. Sin is about omission and commission. Have some of you heard this before? It's about omission and commission. We see in the very first moment of rebellion to God that she takes the fruit and eats it. That's a sin of commission, committing an act. But we also see that the man is not to be unblamed because she gives it to her husband and it says this, who was with her? Some translations say was right by her side. Sin is about committing sin, doing the wrong thing. But sin is also about not doing the right thing. Omission. In other words, so you have this whole series with the man and, uh, or sorry, the woman and the serpent. Woman and serpent, they're like going back and forth. And you're like, wow, this woman is, you know, deceived. And then you get to this line and you realize, oh, Adam was there the whole time. Just chilling. Not doing anything. He didn't say a word. And he eats it too. He goes right along with it. The sin of omission and the sin of commission happens with the wife and the man. And it's interesting because your New Testament, and I, I feel like I'm going to get a question on this, so I'm just going to get right to it. Did Was it Eve's fault or Adam's fault, right? Let's just blame one of the genders, right? Let's get down to it, man. Let's do this. It's got to be man's fault or woman's fault, right? Um, it's interesting. I want to give you just one example of one biblical author pinning it on both because if sin's about omission and commission, it's not about who's to blame necessarily. Both are to blame um, because both commit sin just in different ways. One through commission, one through omission. And actually Paul himself shows this up. I gotta take you to a dicey part part of scripture to show you this that I don't wanna, I don't wanna get into today. I just don't wanna get into it. We'll handle it some other time. Obviously, women preach at awakening, so that's just the spoiler alert, okay? So we have an interpretation of this. I just can't do it today. I love you. We'll do another school of faith on it later. I don't know. Maybe we won't. Um, okay. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgress transgressor. So that's a verse where you're like, oh, well, Eve's to blame because she was deceived and became a transgressor yet at the same time you have romans 5 verse 12 where we have this whole passage talking about how death and sin came through adam and eve isn't mentioned once it says yet death reigned from adam to moses even over those whose sinning was not like there's the same word transgression that was used about eve is used about adam and Adam is the one who's actually thrown more under the bus to be the one person who sin reigned through. And Paul is doing this whole trick to show us that if, right here at the end, death reigned through that one man, and that is a gendered word, by the way, one man, much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's trying to say sin entered through one man, Adam, entered through, and grace enters through one man, Jesus Christ. So... Who's to blame? Uh, Paul himself had a theology that was like, both have sin in them. And each time, I want this to be very clear, each time Paul is using those as rhetorical devices to point out our own sin. To try to ask the question, who's to blame, man or woman in the fall, is to miss the point, which is this. 
Adam and Eve just so happened to be the first, right? This is something that human beings were rejecting the ways of God, is that death reigned through one man, and that one man happened to be named Adam. But death is reigning in you without Christ. Death is reigning in the Silicon Valley without Christ. Death is reigning, and there is one salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the rhetorical argument that like, he's trying to make. That's like what, how, why he's bringing these things up. And this leads me to something really important for us to, to look at before we move on. A lot of people look at the creation narrative, okay, and they see like um, a world of good and evil. Um, but as you consider and have read now Genesis 1 through 3, 4 into 11, basically, um, C.S. Lewis has this great idea where he says, we don't live in a world, and the creation story is not a story of good and evil. Um, it's not a story of God creating good and God creating evil. Nor is it a story of God being good and another equal counterpart of evil and they war together. If you study ancient like creation narratives, which I had to do in seminary, but then was really grateful that somebody made me do it because I would have never done it on my own. You read Babylonian creation myths, you read um, creation myths from Asia and China, Japan, think places like that, elsewhere in the Middle East, pagan, like Europe, ancient European kind of creation narratives. They're all kind of the same. There's good, there's evil, they go at war with each other, and that's the world we live in. The biblical story stands very uniquely to show us that we don't live in a world of good and evil, but God created a good world that rebelled against him. So here's my point. We aren't living in a world of good versus evil. We're living in a world of good versus rebels. And the thing that C.S. Lewis says is we're not uh, in a traditional war, that the world we live in is a civil war. So that which God created was good and the good unified nation state that was Eden rebelled against him and decided to secede from the nation, right? And created a civil war that we are living in now. That basically, and the word rebellion is all through scripture, and this is why this word becomes so key, is that evil, again, is in the English language is like kind of morally complicated. It's filled with like moral implications. But really the word that's best describing the state of human affairs is in rebellion to the good God and the good creation he created. Um, this is really important theologically, right? Because we cast out people, we think they're evil, um, right? We, um, yeah, we think that they're wrong and we demonize them, but really they're just like us, right? Um, we were once rebels to God. We rebelled against God. In fact, if we really inspect our hearts without the Holy Spirit and without the gospel of salvation, we ourselves will rebel against God. But also, equally, at the same time, it means that innately in everyone is the image of God. We talked about that last week, right? And so innately in people, it's not that God created good people and bad people, good people and evil people. He created goodness, and it multiplied, and in its multiplication decided to rebel against the good ways of God. It's a civil war, not a traditional war questions of where we're at right now. The result of moving out of God's uh, shield of wisdom and to decide to be wise in your own eyes um, creates one dominant feeling. The eyes are opened here 
and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. This is shame. And sin, um, it's interesting that the first metaphor for sin, like, sorry, after sin, the first metaphor of the response to human beings when they sin is, uh, is not regret, but shame. Because, um, and the metaphor is hiding, right? Covering up yourself, loincloths. And I just think that's so accurate. You know, sin is, as we talk about it and as we see the story, sin is less of um, like moral misbehavior, right? Like I said, get your mind off of the fruit and the tree and get your mind back to she saw and she took and the man was with her. Is that sin is really a disease. Sin is a disease that we were tempted to kind of like basically take a bite of. And that disease spreads from Eden out to the cosmos. That Eden becomes what, what was once the incubator of God's goodness and love becomes then the patient zero of the disease that will ravage all of creation. The eyes are opened to, hey, we can do whatever we want. We don't have to obey God. And that idea, that feeling, that desire, that seeing and taking, um, we can do that, right? Do you guys remember when you were little and you like got, a, I don't know if you have this memory, I have a terrible memory, but like when you got away with something for the first time, the thrill of that, you know, you got away with something for the second time, the thrill of that. Now, some of you are still getting away with stuff and you feel the thrill, right? Like getting away with things and there's a thrill there. But, but the Bible also talks about that there's this like really deep shame right there's this dark shame that happens in this is that out of this disease um, and I think disease is kind of an interesting metaphor because um, it's it's something that kind of like apprehends you um, that kind of increases in your life um, and creates further and further shame and hiding and so that's the reaction to sin is is kind of the shame the best part about this so just look at these uh, three verses, six, seven, and eight. In six, and you can like write this down or mark your Bible or something. In six, we see the sin. In seven, we see the shame. And in eight, we see the pursuit. Okay, the pursuit of God. The sin results in shame for human beings in verse 7. I just love how quickly this moves, right? It's like sin happens, then shame happens, then the seeking happens. Right at sin. Remember, God says you will surely die when you eat of it. They eat of it. They're making themselves loincloths. And God, look it, they heard the sound of the Lord God. And what is he doing, by the way? Yeah, he's walking. There are a lot of good Hebrew words for hunting, a lot of good Hebrew words for running, a lot of good Hebrew words for, um, like, coming to kill you. Um, this is a word that has been translated strolling. God, God's first reaction to sin is to just walk where sin is. Isn't that cool? 
God's first reaction to sin. And it says in the cool of the day, which is like a Hebrew phrase of talking about like that perfect afternoon time where you get the breeze, the sun's starting to set, or the morning when the sun's starting to rise. It's the cool of the day. So God walks, and what do the man and his wife do? They hide. This is so important because in the story, you guys, you're going to run into this when you read your Old Testament. You're going to run into a million times where people sin and they feel shame and they hide from the presence of the Lord, but God is pursuing. God's first response to sin is pursuit. And this is really, really big because you've heard me talk about this at Awakening on Sunday because I'm pretty passionate about it, is that there's this bad theology out there that's like, man, God can't be around sin. What do you see here? <laughs> he seems pretty comfortable. What is the cross? The cross is God bearing sin, holding sin, defeating sin. This is what I like to say. I take this from my friend Joshua Ryan Butler, great writer, great books by him. He says, it's not that God cannot be around sin. It's that sin cannot be around God. And that's a huge difference. Because you will notice, where is the serpent in this scene? <laughs> Actually, later, when he starts to curse him, he's got to call him over. He's like, hey, you, I'm cursing you. But here, the serpent runs. I mean, he's nowhere to be found, and so do the people. Why? Because sin is afraid of God. God's not afraid of sin. That's a huge difference. What happens right here is that God is not afraid of sin. He can be around sin, but sin runs in the sight of God. Because God is so pure, God is so holy. But God is walking in a garden that has just disobeyed him. So don't tell me that God can't be around sin. Because God is constantly around sin. In fact, he relates with his people for centuries, chilling with them, killing babies and adulterating and filling themselves with idolatry. And he's constantly speaking to them still, right? Man, the gospel is all about God seeking us in our own sin, right? All right, I'm preaching. We're, we're in a class. <laughs> Slow down here. All right. They hid themselves. So we hide, God seeks, right? Um, and then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. This is a very common response is to be afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said this, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Bad move, I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> Still a bad move. Just millennia later, bad move. 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, He turns to the woman, What is it that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. Okay, so much happening here. First, to keep in the theme of God's goodness, because I always hear, well, the Old Testament God this, the Old Testament God that. Again, he's chilling around sin. He's walking in the garden of the cool of the day. I'm not saying he's not judging sin. He's about to judge it harshly. He's about to excommunicate these people from his presence. But I want you to know that anger is not God's first reaction. Anger is not his first emotion. In fact, uh, I don't have time. Search this sometime. Slow to anger. Search that into Bible Gateway. It will pop up dozens of verses in your Old Testament. And that phrase, 
uh, in the Hebrew means long nostrilled. <laughs> it literally means that. It means God has a long fuse. He's slow to anger. Does he get angry at sin? Yes. Does he judge sin? Yes. But from the first moment, God seeks his people. He's with his people. And what does he do? He asks them questions. There are, just so you know, four questions in five verses. The first question is, where are you? The second question is, who told you, were who told you that you were naked? The third question is, have you eaten of the tree? And the fourth question is, what have you done? All of these questions, let me ask you this. Does God know the answer to all these questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. God is not asking, where are you for God's sake? God is asking, where are you for Adam's sake, right? Adam doesn't know where he is. Adam's got no idea what he's doing. Did, does God not know the answers to these questions? No. He is asking these questions because he's offering them, I believe, repentance. Where are you? It's a beautiful question. Oh, here's a little hat tip to my first book, Distant God. Um, where are you? The first time this question is asked is not man to God, but God to man. Right? Because we're always like, God, where are you? God, where are you? First time in scripture, it's actually God looking at us going, where are you? Right? Most of the time, the lack of God's like presence in our life is mostly because um, he's walking in the garden and we're hiding ourselves from the presence of the Lord, God. Um, these questions, you guys, are angled towards repentance and their responses are really, really important. The questions, I just gave you four questions in five verses, are followed with like straight up lies, which is that other word there on your notes, right? Um, let's just take these last couple questions. Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you to eat? This little scene in like 11, 12, and 13, God's like looking at the man, he's like, have you eaten it? And it's almost like, I always view it like, um, like one of those comic scenes in a movie where it's like, the move the like camera pans to the man and the guys and god's like man have you eaten the tree and he's she, he's just like the woman and the camera pans to the woman and the woman's like the serpent and the camera pans the serpent and the serpent's gone you know like there is no serpent there um what's happening here what's happening when they respond the way they respond Deflection. Definitely. One of the themes you'll see here is really what God's looking for is taking responsibility for your sin. Confession and repentance. Uh, David, described famously as a man after God's own heart, right? The guy who murdered someone because... He slept with the guy's wife. That guy is the man after God's own heart. The guy who's an adulterer and a murderer. I don't know of anybody who's blown up his life as worse as David, right? David has blown up his life, man. But then, um, then he writes songs like this. 
I mean, did this guy know? By the way, oh, I'm giving you this because it's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. That's the Old Testament way of saying, right, he had sex with her and then he murdered her husband who was away at war. Do you remember this story from the Old Testament? Yeah, he was not a good man. This is not someone we would describe as morally upright. Why was he a man after God's own heart? Is because after he blew up his life, he wrote this song. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, you can't get purge me, right? You can't get more awake to his sin than this. And look at what he asks God to do. He goes, I can't do this. You got to create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. I know I deserve to be cast away from your presence, but I pray that you don't. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold. Psalm 51 is a prayer of a person who knows what's up and who takes responsibility of their sin. And I'll tell you, in light of reading the rest of the story of Israel, and you see a pattern of sin and like a like an abdicating of responsibility, to use Alex's word, a deflection. And then you see people who own their sin and beg God for forgiveness in humility and in desperation, and those people are celebrated. Not because they're morally upright. I want to get that very clear. David was not a man after his own heart because he was morally upright. David was a man after his own of God's own heart because he knew God's heart to forgive. And David, as you watch his life, he didn't, he truly repented. He didn't do this again. He didn't, he didn't do this kind of thing again. He sinned after that for sure. But you see a genuine repentance in him that you just don't see here, you guys. You see the man saying, the woman gave it to me. Then the woman saying, the serpent deceived me and then I ate it. And it's interesting in God's great grace, he then turns to the serpent first and to the serpent he curse he curses the serpent he says the the lord god looked uh, said to the serpent because you've done this cursed are you and so actually there was a um question last week about this i kind of w- went to i have two words on here consequence and curse curse is for the serpent consequence is for the human beings and i'll show you the word curse is really really strong in the bible And God looks at the serpent, and he really does. Now, this is very important. This is getting I'll get a question on this, I'm sure. But this tricky territory, right? Like, where did evil begin, all that stuff? Oh, man, I don't know. Okay? This is my best stab at it, though. When there's the blame shifting going on, you're going to get to it. The man and the wife have serious blame on them and transgressions. But when the woman passes the blame to the serpent... God's not like, it's not his fault. You're a terrible woman, and you're a terrible man, and I'm cursing both of you. Don't blame the devil. He does look to the devil and curse the devil. That there is something evil spiritually in the heart of the holy hosts, the Elohim, the lowercase g gods, that God recognizes, and he says, I will curse that that is wicked and that is evil, that has led my creation 
into uh, astray. Again, he's not, he does not advocate the people from responsibility. We're about to get there. I'm just saying he goes at Satan first. It's just important. Where did evil come from? Did it start with Adam and Eve? Did it start with humanity? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, we can make a million guesses on it. I just look at this as being kind of fascinating that um, evil and the rebellion of evil was a spiritual reality with spiritual beings that then tempted the creation and God hates all of it and God judges all of it and God casts all of it away. But the order is important and the words are important. God does not curse humanity. God gives humanity consequences, but he curses Satan. And a curse is just a way of saying, I am after you to defeat you and destroy you forever. That's what a curse is. I'm after you to defeat you and destroy you forever. Um, a consequence is not, I'm after you to defeat you and destroy you forever. Consequence is because you've done this, an if then. If you've done this, then you'll do this. If you eat of it, then you will surely die. And God already set up the consequence beforehand in his goodness. He's not judging Adam and Eve out of arbitrary judgments. This is also important. God does not see sin and go, I'm going to make up something terrible. Here's a fire I'm going to throw you in and you'll burn forever. No. He says, he tells them, if you do this, you will die. And they eat of it and he shows them death. I'm going to jump back to the curse because we see the gospel here too in a second. But the, man, the woman is, is given the consequence of childbearing. Well, both are, I'll say, both are given the consequence of pain. One is given the pain of childbearing, of bringing forth children, and it being painful, and also the pain. <laughs> this is one of the pains he, she's given is her husband. <laughs> you guys will not get along because. And here's the deal: it's a consequence because. And here, here's kind of a tricky Old Testament theology thing. Some argue that this consequence already happened because they both blamed, or he, he blamed her, right? So the blame is kind of related to this consequence, right? Again, it's not this curse, this magician like waving the wand and like this is the way your life's going to be now. And Adam is given the pain of the ground and cursed is the ground, not, not cursed are you. But because of you, the consequence is I'm cursing this ground. It's not going to be pretty for you. This is really important to agricultural societies. It's not that important for you anymore. But the important thing, I think, is that um, pain in the home and out of the home will happen because of sin. There's thorns and thistles, sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you will return. You shall surely die. The man called his wife Eve. Um, they and now this is so beautiful remember they made they made garments for themselves who makes them in verse 21 yeah they made them first and god doesn't point at that and say why are you doing that so stupid he's like i will allow for you a way to live in shame i mean it's kind of this weird thing now god makes them garments and says you're going to need this i'm going to give you that which you need even though you don't deserve it and even though you did your, you know, you did it to yourself, but I'm still going to provide this. And the judgment comes here. The Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us, nose tov and raw, lest he reach out his hand and continue to eat the tree and continue to try to make his way to be like God, build himself up, build himself up, build himself up." Um, 
lest he do that, I'll banish him from the garden. And so he drove him out, and he placed cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every which way, and they're exiled from the Garden of Eden. Then more depressing things happen through these boys. And you read this story, and you start to see that um, envy becomes one of the driving emotions in a world of sin. It's a really key lesson from the story of Cain and Abel. And also, um, I don't have, we don't have time to like go through this detail by detail, but um, if you notice when Cain sins, the Lord actually has the same response. And he asks him a question. So again, guys, God's response to sin is to offer repentance. Now, every person who's offered repentance lies. And look at what he says. Um, Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And the Lord says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he protects him. And so he does some of something similar. In the same way he protected the man and wife for loin, with loincloths, he protects Cain and says, nobody will, har- will harm you or hurt you, um, even though the, your sin is greater than you can bear, and you'll wander along the earth. So God gives a similar response. He actually asks him two questions. Where's your brother and what have you done? Where's your brother and what have you done? Same type of response. Cain continues to drive himself into um, evil and sin. And by the way, where is that? Um, Yeah, he's driven from the ground. Yeah, I think that's all I have to say about that. The purpose of five, again, is to show the massive expansion of sin. Five and six is the increasing corruption on the earth. God floods the earth, and that doesn't do it. Because if you read that story carefully, Noah comes out of his salvation moment and sins and creates rebellion against God. We don't have time to go into the details of that story. In verse or in chapter 8, though, you can, you can read it. And God starts making covenants with people. Um, oh, I think there's a good verse for us to just look at very quickly. After the story of Cain and Abel, this is when people began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, like, they tried to now look to God for salvation. So while sin is, is corrupting, there are people who are calling on the name of the Lord, and that's Noah in the beginning. He's like walking with God. It says that he's like blameless and walking with God, and he starts really well, but he ends really poorly in chapter 8. Sin continues to expand through the story, and God creates covenants, but people just keep destroying um, God's good world. I know I'm flying over Noah really fast because I have to get to Babel um, first.
because this is important because we're actually still in Eden basically in the sense that we're in God's kind of created world and one of the questions that should arise when the whole earth is flooded and Noah comes back with um, his family is we should be like hey like what about people outside of Noah's family um, what about the people on the other nations that have been rolling around outside of the little space we've been covering right um, and this is this is one of the stories about that that the whole earth had this one language and remember the writer of the whole earth um, is 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 talking either about the entire planet but probably more realistically here is about the whole space in which I know remember God created the heavens and the earth like what's up there and what's down there and he's like his this writer saying in the, in the space and time where I where this story sits everybody's speaking the same language um, that's probably more of it than like the exact planet of the earth and as people migrated from the east they found a plane uh, a plane in the land of Shinar and they settled there um, and they make bricks and they start to build this city. Look at verse, yeah, four. Come, let us build for us a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. And the Lord God sees the same heart in this as the heart in the Garden of Eden, outside in this other nation, in the east, far, far away, in this land of Shinar, which is really far away. The Lord God come, came down to see that what they had built, and he said, Behold, look, these people, nothing will be impossible for them if they keep doing this. Let's go down and confuse them so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth, and they left off uh, the building of the city. And that's why this is called Babel, which means confusion, because the Lord confused the language. It says, it says if you read it in the Hebrew, it says, uh, therefore, the, the, it, the, the name of this place is Babel because the Lord babbled the language. Like it, It's like a play on words. And the Lord dispersed people all over the earth. He basically does what he did in the flood with more grace, right? The flood, he's like, I won't do that again, but I'm going to do that once. And here he's going, this is going to be the consequence. Is you're going to build yourself up without me? I'm not, I'm going to limit that. Like God is... Here's something really important to, to write down, that God is constantly limiting and defeating sin. He's like limiting and defeating sin. And if you have any questions about hell, that is what hell is. It is the limitation and the containment, the final and full containment of sin and death is hell. And God is trying to constantly, um, working his power to constantly contain sin. And I want to show you this to just end on and then we'll take questions. So we're at 8.30 right now. Going back to the curse of Satan. So it's important to have that whole vision of sin, how it's spread and spread and spread across the entire known world. There's basically, by the time you get to Genesis 12, there is, uh, I'd put it this way, there is no place sin is not by Genesis 11. It's like you're constantly through all those stories. Again, the Bible has a story. That's this, what this whole class is about. When you get to this point, you're, 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 as you move into this, your constant question is going to be like, where is sin not happening, Right? And by 11, you're pretty much convinced there's no place sin is not. But a careful reading of Genesis 3 shows you God's plan amidst sin, which from the beginning of the fall, from the beginning, has always been redemption. Okay, so he, he tells him, he tells the serpent, like, I'm cutting off your legs, basically. You're just going to roll around on the ground like a snake. And 
what he says in verse 15, uh, people, uh, scholars call this the first gospel. So at the first sin, there's the first element of good news, the first gospel. He tells this serpent, I will put you as an enemy, enmity. You will have friction between you and the woman and between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent, and her offspring, the offspring uh, of Eve. He, offspring of Eve, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is often, like I said, very commonly interpreted as the very first time we see what Jesus is here to do. There's a seed of the woman, an offspring, um, that word, by the, sorry, word in, in Hebrew is seed, um, between two seeds, the seed of Satan and the seed of Eve, the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve, will be at enmity, and the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And upon crushing the head of the serpent, the stepping on, you can imagine a heel going on the head of a snake, that forceful thing will cause harm and damage to the seed of Eve. Are we seeing Jesus here? The cross um, is the broken body of Jesus Christ in the defeat of Satan's sin and death. Um, this is why Paul, like later, will reflect in Colossians 2, um, in this way and you you were dead in your trespasses the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven all us trespasses how did he do that by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities which is a New Testament way of saying Satan and his demons and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. That Christ in the cross was defeating Satan's sin and death. He was stepping on the head of Satan and taking Satan down, but it was coming at a cost at his own life. And this is what's going to guide us all the way to here, is this metaphor in Genesis 3.15. So again, I'm trying to teach you like this idea of the story of scripture. And it's gonna be this question, um, who is the seed of Adam, or who is the seed of Eve, and who is the seed of Satan? And where, where might we find this seed that will finally defeat Satan and evil? Like, where is that person? And so, literally even in Genesis 4, when Cain and Abel show up, you've got to go as a reader of the ancient Hebrew Bible, are these the boys? Are one of these the boys? And then one kills the other, and you're like, probably not. <laughs> And then you meet Noah, and you're like, is he the guy? Wait, look it. He said, like, uh, Noah was a righteous man. Blame us on the generation. Is he the guy? And then the flood happens, and then sketchy things happen in the tent with him and his sons, and you're like, and he gets drunk, and you're like, probably not. And on and on and on it goes. And really, one of the first times you see somebody where you're like, this could be the guy, uh, is right after right after you're like there's definitely no one in these descendants there's definitely no one in the confusion of babel there's no one in the whole earth and then you get this story and you realize this might be our guy but that's next week <laughs>
is Abram the guy? Abram is called by God, given a covenant, and he's one of the ones who starts to obey. God tells him, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. I will work in you my redemptive plan. I'm going to make you a people of my own possession. And if you follow me, not only will you be blessed in this little space, but all the nations of all the earth will be blessed. And so in the same way that sin started in a certain geographic space with a family and spread to the cosmos, so will God work his redemptive plan from one nation out to the whole earth. That's the story we're getting into. And we're going to see if this man and his family and the people of Israel are that family to be. One quick cool thing about my guy Abraham that I won't be able to do next week, so I might as well do it now, is um, do you know who Abraham was? What made him great? What made him his, his qualifications? Who was he that was so good? Um, Joshua tells us in a speech to the people of Israel, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Remember this? This was like they lived in Eden, in Terah. We looked at this last week. The father of Abraham uh, lived out there, Terah. Uh, and look it, they served other gods. One of the coolest things about the story of Abraham is he like wasn't a Christian. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's like really complicated language. But Abraham was living in a foreign land beyond the Euphrates, past Eden, in another space, in another time, and he was worshiping other Elohim. And God goes, you. And Abraham goes, okay. That is faith across the whole scriptures. That is what faith is defined by, is Abraham just going, I'll, I trust you. I'll walk with you. And that's the first sign we get, is this the seat that's going to bring us to redemption? And we've got a whole Old Testament to do next week, so...